Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into other podcasts, pop culture. And this week, we'll ask the question, is it a crime to encourage someone to commit suicide? We'll talk about HBO's latest true crime documentary, I Love You, Now Die. Then we're going to review the new Netflix series that pulls the curtain back on junk forensic science. That's called Exhibit A. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, who I am proud to say is recording this show pantsless right now, <laughs> Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. It's, it's hot in here. I know, but you think you're going to like take off your pants and I'm not going to mention it on the podcast? No one has to know. <laughs> I'm wearing my pants. Sing the Winnie the Pooh song. <laughs> <laughs> he is wearing underwear. He's just not wearing yes. pants. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. But are you wearing his underwear, Rebecca? Oh, if people listen to the outtake on our show this week, they'll understand that reference. Mm-hmm. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, a former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and failed alligator hunter, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Yeah, hello. Uh, I didn't get it done, and neither did Alligator Bob, so uh, I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> Someone did, though, right? Yes, Someone a finally professional did. alligator hunter who came up from Florida called Frank Robb. He, like, saw him while he was walking around the lagoon at, like, one in the morning and just captured him. Right. We're this is the alligator about in that. Chicago. Yes. We're talking yeah. about. Chance the Snapper. Chance the Snapper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our favorite Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hola, Rebecca. Well, I want to just extremely quickly get through the plugs portion of the show. So I'm just going to read this real fast because we we have a lot to cover tonight. Uh, So right now on our Patreon, there's a brand new episode of Leave it to Bricker, Laura's podcast, in which she meets her future self. I am not fucking kidding. (laughs) Listen to this week's Leave it to Bricker. Also, Toby gets attacked by a bird and now maybe believes in the owl theory from the staircase case. Maybe. Uh, We'll also include in that Patreon after show tonight, which, of course, is the add-on to this podcast that drops the same time as this show. Our Patreon Crime Writers on After Show includes the very best parts of our live show from the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago, including our conversation about that shocking, 
off-format episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson and a particularly salty game of Crime Writers Against Humanity. Right? I think we could just get in a bus, go town to town, play that game. I'm just going to say my future self had to leave the room. Um, she did. <laughs> which kind of goes with my current self who had never played it before the last time we first played it. Wait a minute. You're not speaking figuratively. Ex- ex- I'm talking about my, my new friend Marilyn, who is me at age 84. We met her in Chicago at the True Crime Podcast Festival. She's in a wheelchair being pushed around by her daughter, who said, if you guys are going to play Crime Writers Against Humanity, I have to wheel my mom out the room. We all assumed the daughter was the fan and her mom was her plus one. Mm-hmm. Turns out, Marilyn, at 84 years old... She's the fan. ...is the biggest crime fan... Super fan. ...in the entire world. Yeah. And she's been adjacent to many murders, but I don't want to spoil yeah. it. How old is she? She's almost 84, and I told her, I hope she makes it, but if she gets murdered, yeah. I'd do a podcast about her. She's 84, and she hasn't her, heard the Her word birthday fuck. is coming up, I think, on August 18th, so. That's right. All right. That's we'll, right. We'll send a and card. And it was like that show Dark on Netflix, except it was Laura. <laughs> it was. Oh, my God. Who came back to the tunnel. Coming back to meet Laura. <laughs> this is your future. Anyway, you can hear all about that on this week's Leave it to Bricker, and of course, you can hear the show that poor Marilyn, future Lara, was not tolerant of sitting around to listen to uh, on our after show as well. And a just special shout out to a couple of listeners who showed up this weekend with Leanne. Amazing. Mm-hmm. James, OG listener. Amazing to meet you and your amazing wife, Shawnee. And also Jeff who designed the new uh, Crime Writers on Art, the fan art with the four of our heads with all the t-shirts and stuff. He was there. He kicks ass. Thank you guys and everybody else who came out to see us. Who are we forgetting? We're forgetting tons of people. Yeah, sorry. But I want to thank those people in particular because we hung out with them a lot and it was super fun. Mm. All right. Are you guys ready for our first review tonight? I'm ready. I've got my pen ready. I've got my Cosmopolitan ready. (laughs) I've got my hand ready to slap if I get upset. Let's go. In the first of a summer slate of true crime documentaries, HBO presents the two-part series, I Love You, Now Die. A18 to all prizing stations. This is for a missing 18-year-old boy, Conrad Roy. Check the welfare and notify the Haven police. We're adding him in as missing. It examines the strange case of Michelle Carter, a Massachusetts teenager accused of ordering her boyfriend to commit suicide over text message and even getting him to get back into a carbon monoxide filled truck after he thought twice about finishing the job of killing himself. He was scared. She knows he's going to die. And she says, I could have done something to stop it. And if I had, he would still be alive today. While the media shorthand was of a teenage texting black widow, the documentary tells a deeper story than was presented on TV news. I Love You Now Die probes the troubled lives of both young people to offer more complex reasons that Conrad Roy might have wanted to die and why Michelle Carter didn't stop him. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points from I Love You Now Die. So if you want to remain spoiler free and just get our thumbs up or thumbs down review, go to the time code listed in the show notes. Now, the central question at the beginning of this, Kevin, is obviously whether or not it's a crime to do what Michelle Carter did. And that's complicated because the judge sort of split it two ways. But the thing that I want to ask you about first is that the documentary splits the story into two parts, the prosecution and the defense. Mm -hmm. The first half of it, the first part, basically shows what we learned on TV news 
and adds more, which is very much the victim's own voice. There are videos of Conrad talking to himself in like a video diary format. What did you think of the way that they split this up in terms of like part one being like, here's what everyone knows happened and part two taking that apart a little bit? I think that's a good way of doing it because, you know, whether it's broken up into two parts, that that's the way the narrative is going to flow anyway. You're going to start kind of with what you know or what you think you know and then start pulling that apart. I think it was a, you know, a very sensible way of, of doing that. And if we're going to talk about the first part, it was very enlightening. I mean, you do have a lot of sympathy for Conrad's family, and you get to hear and see him speak. And you understand that he was a troubled guy, and I think it just sort of lays the groundwork for an understanding in the second episode of the complexities of his life and how that fits in with uh, Michelle. Now, Laura, you follow this case in the TV news like I did. Yes. It was a, a big story it here was, in New England. Yeah. It was a national story, but it was definitely sort of like a daily reported story, like on the Boston yeah. based news. Yeah. What did you think watching this as a documentary after you'd followed it on local news? Um, well, I have to say, when I followed it on the local news, I think I had the same initial reaction that a lot of people did, which was just like, this is horrible. What a bitch. I can't believe she did that. What a horrible person. And then I watched this documentary and I was like, oh, there's a lot more to this story that I never knew because I was only getting these superficial sort of, you know, it's pretty sensational, like the text messages and, the you know, telling him to get back in the car. So when I got, you know, obviously a deeper picture of the, you know, both of their mental health issues and also their relationship as told through these text messages, um, it gave me a, a little different perspective. What did you think, Toby, about how, you know, some of the people in the documentary, one of the voices we get is that Esquire reporter who covered the case. And in part one, you kind of get a sense that he's going to just basically telling us our version of it that we already know from news. But then he, he kind of weaves and goes in a different direction. But he helps sort of set up how the portrayal of how society looks at women and girls in the context of a story like this as sort of like bewitching, beguiling, luring, you know, uh, an innocent man into trouble. They kind of got into that early in the documentary, which I found refreshing. What did you think of that part of the storytelling? Yeah, no, I thought that was good. You know, I think it's accurate. And, and the, that um, that therapist guy talked about it, too, like going back as far as like burning witches and stuff, because there was, you know, she was portrayed in the media. Like, I didn't follow it that closely, but you couldn't escape the pictures and the way sort of visually she was portrayed was as sort of a temptress or whatever. Mm. And there's that one picture that Nancy Grace, you know, look at the puss on her. Yeah. Nancy um, Grace is like once again appearing in a true crime thing. <laughs> she's just, like, I, I can't believe how fucking she's horrible she is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I thought I thought that was interesting. I thought it was good. I think it, it sort of put into context, you know, in a cultural context, what what was made of the story and how people kind of, the media created these narratives, but they are also like the narrative was something that people were familiar with and were certainly ready to accept with great enthusiasm, I would say. I want to play a clip that demonstrates that. In part one, they do play some clips of some man on the street interviews that happened sort of in the course of this case. I've never met the girl, but I've seen pictures of her. She just has that look that I remember. But I see that look, and it's like, you little snot, 
How could you do that to a human being, you 90210 piece of crap? Uh, you know? Now, Kevin, yeah. we are neighbors to the fine state of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. We know a lot of people who sound exactly like that woman. Can we just get that out of the way? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Fuck that gash. That clam queen. Fuck her. She deserves what she gets. I know. I know. It's not uh, a funny subject, but there are funny moments in the documentary I that we are reminded of our fine neighbors to the south. No offense, guys. No offense. Um, and of course, the reporter from Esquire, who you know does play a deeper role later, does sort of talk about Michelle's appearance in court, how she appeared thin, blonde, tan, camera ready. It doesn't take long, though, for us to get a slightly different picture of Michelle in particular and of Conrad. But one of the things that we learn about Michelle is that despite being attractive, despite sort of uh, having a good reputation among her teachers and peers, she doesn't seem to have a lot of relationships that go any deeper than that. And her voice is not in this documentary. The only representative mm-hmm. of her side we get is her lawyer, which I think kind of undercuts any arguments. That and the this expert is, witness. The expert witness, mm-hmm. too. But it does kind of undercut the idea that this is like a Michelle-centric documentary because there's a lot of voices from Conrad's side of the story. Kevin, that sort of portrayal of her in the media, uh, tan, blonde, thin, beautiful, do you think the documentary does an effective job of showing us that there's more to Michelle than what we saw on the TV news? Yes, and more to Connor as well and his family life. I mean, I guess I should not be surprised that these stories are more complex in real life than they are in the news, but it does provide some really some some really good context that is compelling in and of itself. Hmm. You know, even if this did not have its deadly ends. The uh, the story of their lives and this modern romance and this abusive at times, destructive, needy relationship, codependent relationship that these guys had with one another, it's illuminating. Like even sort of her sort of being thin and attractive, as you learn more, you see pictures of her earlier when she when she was not nearly as thin mm-hmm. and you realize that her being that thin is the product of sort of her, her you know, uh, mental health issues. She's an eating disorder. Uh, yeah, she's bulimic. So it's not like that comes to seem almost like a pathology right. yeah. uh, rather than as her like being camera ready for her big moment in the sun. And we're led to believe that they actually didn't have any sort of legitimate physical relationship the idea that she's like a sexual temptress at you know age 17 or whatever it is is not true i re- read her more as being cold hmm. which wait but before you saw this or before wh- i saw yeah, this yeah. the way i read her demeanor her affect in court was like oh she's cold hearted which plays into the idea she looks like that because of her her affect which plays into the narrative of she didn't care about this guy and just say, go fucking kill yourself. Right. So basically what you're talking about is your impressions of her mm-hmm. while you followed the story in the news. Yeah. And how... That's why that seemed to track with a lot of people. It did. And I have to say, we'll, we'll get to that because I think <laughs> watching this, I had a lot of... I mean, this is one of the first times I brought into the studio like my handwritten notes that I took while watching something. I usually mm-hmm. sort of able to like very briefly type out my thoughts, but my feelings were so strong when I watched this. I really wanted to capture how I felt at the time when we talked about it mm-hmm. because my very strong feelings about both of these characters is that they were both incredibly troubled. 
And I know that you had a note, Kevin, where you thought this idea of a, a relationship where you barely see each other, but it's considered a serious relationship. Like, how common is that? Like, that is common. I can tell you that yeah. from spying on my own kids' electronic communications. Mm-hmm. Like, they have what they would consider to be close friends who they've never met and never will meet. And those relationships can be really, really intense. Seems like a guy with a car. Yeah. It wasn't like she lived in California. No, no, she but lived the, in the next western, county. The western part of the well, state. Well, no, I, like she in lived in Plainville. I pulled it up on the map. It's yeah. like an. It's like not even an hour. Hold on, how did I? I just yeah. I have a little map quest thing going here. Plainville. He lives South Shore. He was in New Bedford. She was in Plainville, which is kind of over on the corner of like Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Fifty-four minutes. But they met in Florida, yeah. which is interesting because families were friends. Yeah. Laura, can I just like run through a couple of quick legal things and just get your impressions sure. about them? One thing was that Michelle was interviewed at her high school without a parent present. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that your phone? Is that the phone you've had? Yeah, it's my phone. It's kind of broken. Oh, it is? Oh, uh, well, is it's it, the screen. Is this password protected? Yeah. What's, you know the password? Um... I felt a little weird about that. I mean, at that point, you know, when you hear the police detectives talk, I don't think they thought at that point it was going to end up. Uh, I mean, who would imagine this is what what the case would end up as? They had the warrant for the phone, but getting the um, password, I was like, uh, I felt a little uncomfortable with that. Um, I'll just put it that way. Uh, second legal question I have for you. How do you feel about Michelle's choice to go with a judge and not a jury trial? Um, that was like the best way that they could have gone with that case, because, uh, you know, look at look at us. We saw this case on the news. We reacted very emotionally. Um I think the jurors would not have been able to take emotion out of the case. So I think, you know, that was the best bet. Go with the judge where the judge is going to, you think, you hope, rely on the law and you only have to convince one person who's actually got a legal background as opposed to jurors who are going to be like, what the fuck went on here, you know? Now, Toby, the prosecution's theory of the case is basically that Michelle wants friends, And she wants these popular girls in high school to like her and that she was basically rehearsing Conrad's potential suicide to these girls to kind of gauge what their reactions would be. And that she was especially motivated to get him to kill himself so that she would engender sympathy with this group of girls. Now, we did see these girls like paraded into court during the trial. Olivia Masalgo, please. Would you consider yourself a close friend with her in high school? We're close teammates, I would say. So you were more teammates, not friends? We were friends in the sense that I was there for her when she was going through things, and okay. but not every day, like, best friends. Would you go on weekends, would you hang out with her? No. Uh, is it fair to say that she expressed to you that she felt like she had no friends? Yes. And did she send text messages to you about that? Yes. Livy, I have, like, no friends. Okay. Do you recall getting that text message from Michelle Carter? Yes. What did you think of that theory of the prosecution? If it had been a jury trial, I wouldn't have been surprised. But with a judge, it just seems so simplistic. And for something that just had to be complicated, that I I couldn't believe that the judge took it that seriously. Mm. I I don't think things like that come down to that simple, you know, a calculation on somebody's part where the best way for me to get popular is to talk my 
text boyfriend into committing suicide. It's just sort of on the face of it seems kind of ridiculous. And they, they put all their, their eggs in that basket, right? I mean, that was their theory and that was what they stuck to and they made everything kind of fit into. And I was a little surprised that the judge was willing to kind of take that as sort of a legitimate narrative because it seems, and again, you know, I think one of the, and I think this is a good documentary. One of the things that I thought was a little bit lacking is you don't really have much of a sense of what the judge knows, Mm. like what, what information is he making his decision on uh, versus like what we know from having watched the documentary, which makes it when you're sort of evaluating what the decision is, like whether you agree or not, like without knowing what the judge was basing it on makes it a, a little bit tougher to make that evaluation. But I, again, I didn't see that as being super compelling or super realistic. If you were dealing with somebody who, you know, supposedly has a lot of experience and hopefully some sophistication in dealing with, you know, these, these types of situations. I see it a little differently. I I do believe that the prosecution, you know, their theory, they presented their theory of the crime very well. I mean, I think they really did you know, certainly make me wonder to what extent getting attention motivated her, um, because I do think that that's part of it. And I think that even for a judge, you have to ex- present some kind of narrative to go with the legalese. I think in, in his ruling, I think the judge demonstrated that he didn't really think that that was a lot of that was relevant, because in the end, he basically said Conrad was responsible for everything right up into him getting out of the truck. It all falls on him. It doesn't matter about, you know, how much, uh, you know, Michelle wanted the cheerleaders to come and hang out with her. It really just turned on that idea that she told him on the telephone to get back in, which probably happened. No, we don't know if it happened. That was a surprise to me. Yeah, me too. That was a huge surprise to me because that was the narrative of the case that I thought I knew was that she texted him and said, get back in the car. What we know instead was that they had a 40 minute phone call and that she later told a friend that she texted him and said to get back in the car. And then we have numerous examples of other text messages in this documentary that we see where she told her friends things that weren't true. We don't actually know that she told him to get back in the car. Right. And so it's hard to say, well, she lied about this, but she didn't lie about that. And so it's. But one I, doesn't know. I mean, here's my question. And this is why my handwritten notes are important to me, why I'm clinging to them. And I have really strong feelings about this. And maybe it's because one of my kids, I feel like I really relate to the Michelle point of view because I think I, to some degree, parent a kid kind of like Me this. Me too. Yeah. Who has a rich fantasy life a lot of which takes place and plays itself out through online relationships with strangers who models their, you know, maybe a little socially awkward and models a lot of their dialogue and how they interact with people based on movies, TV, video games. Like, you know, this is how sort of one of our kids like talks. He very much talks like he's in a movie. He'll he'll be the first person to say that. Like, like I'll be like, oh, where did you get that? And he'll just tell us the movie that it came from, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, when I look at what the prosecutor says was the motive, I don't see a motive. I see this is how she operates in the world. This very dramatic, unhealthy relationship with the boyfriend, Conrad, was happening. And she was taking pieces of it to talk to these girls with to find relatable common ground. And even if she did think that, oh, if he commits suicide, it'll make me popular in this group. To me, that speaks more to her illness than it does to her 
potential motive. I'm really surprised yeah. no one identified a personality disorder. Yeah. You know, that the expert testimony was she was intoxicated from yeah. antidepressants. I don't know if I buy that. But I, if they had said, well, she has such and such a disorder, I would have said, Dissociative okay. Dissociative or what, sort of an underlying. I don't know. He's a Bo Bergdahl thing, whatever, you know? Yeah. I, I think what really drove it home for me is when we got to the part where the reporter from Esquire is, is sort of detailing how she's like communicating directly using quotes from Glee. Glee is a TV show that is set in an American high school, and the stars are Leah Michelle and Corey Monteith, who are not only the stars of the show, but were a couple in real life. And Michelle was obsessed with Leah Michelle. So often when she was writing to Conrad or writing about Conrad, she would borrow from text that was in this TV show. You are my first love. And I want more than anything for you to be my last. And I think that that more than anything that I had seen up until that point in this documentary really hit me with she's living in a fantasy world. She is modeling what she thinks is normal teenage behavior based on a TV show because her social skills are such that she really doesn't know what is normal behavior, but she almost like, it was like a fantasy, like that whole Romeo and Juliet part. I mean, it was just, uh, and there was, you know, I believe there was like a chain of text messages back and forth where, you know, they were comparing themselves to Romeo and Juliet. So I think when we got to that glee part and it wasn't just like she took ideas, it was like verbatim. That's when I was like, you know, there's a little bit more going on here than I realized with this girl. I want to talk about poor Conrad. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, the video of him talking into his own computer was completely heartbreaking to me. This is obviously like a kid in a tremendous amount of pain. Hi, this is Conrad Roy. And I'm going to talk to you about social anxiety. For me, social anxiety feels like it's overwhelming my life. Like everything does not revolve around me. And now I want to take steps to control it. And in the first episode, you kind of wonder, like, he obviously, it seems to all, like, outside, uh, the outside world, you know, his parents got divorced, but otherwise he comes from, like, strong, like, blue-collar, working-class family, a lot, like, love and support there. And then there is this reveal that Conrad's father was arrested for domestic violence for beating up Conrad. And I just want to play the tape of how Conrad's father, who up until that point is a very sympathetic character in the documentary, talks about that incident. Yeah, you know, you think at first it's kind of embarrassing, but you know what, it doesn't really matter. I know what happened that night with my son, and I know, like, I was being a parent. And I know things got out of control, and we both fought each other. And, um, and I'd do it again, just, just like that. You know, sometimes, like, you say, you know, like my father always said, if you ever take a swing at me, you're going to, uh, you're going to get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're going to make sure you don't do that ever again. And I just felt like I had to do the same thing. I would do the same thing again, said no good father ever. <sighs> Didn't you think that guy looked like a JFK doll <laughs> that got left in the microwave for 30 <laughs> seconds? <laughs> Yeah. You know what that was, though? That was like a throwback. 
I just felt like it was a very outdated sort of approach to parenting. And um, I was kind of surprised that he admitted it on TV. It was like a Dennis Lehane like character. Yeah. That's how I felt watching it. And you have this boy who we see in his first person talking about the pain he's in. And then his mother, who I found to be a tremendously sympathetic character because she obviously left the dad and that was hard. And they don't really get into that in the documentary. But it's right there for you Mm -hmm. to see. Like he was abusive. He admits being abusive. We see the photos of his son with well, the black eye. Well, he admits being abusive. He admits right. He, strong parenting. He was you abusive, know? but we all agree yeah, he was no, abusive. Yes, we agree he's abusive. Um, but then you see this poor boy who previously had suicidal ideation who had been hospitalized. Not ideation. Suicide attempts yeah. and ideation. He'd been hospitalized previously. The reason he was on medication was because he had been suicidal previously. And I, it really just struck home to me that what we know about this, I mean, there are a lot of stories that we see that it's like, there's what you know, and then there's what you haven't heard. This is so much different than what I had heard. And I felt so strongly for both of these children. And all I could think the whole time I was watching this, especially watching Conrad talking to the camera of his, his computer, is he's a child. They're both children. Like they are like... A, he was an abused child. And Michelle, her parents seem fine. We don't get to meet them, but she's really troubled. These are troubled children. And that was the thing that really just stuck out to me so much. And the thing that the Esquire reporter said, and this is the thing that I wanted to ask you guys about, because I think it's an, um, an admission we don't often hear in things like this, that both families, like the court situation ended up being like two families sitting in court. And Kevin, we've written about stories like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Murder victim and, and killer where they're like the two families sitting in court. Both of them are young. Like I think about Darkheart, for example. Mm-hmm. But what this guy said is that both families, what they both want is an outcome where it's not their fault. They're not talking about no. justice. They're talking about like this thing happened and it wasn't because of me. That is very different. I think, again, it goes back to what I said in the beginning, like when I saw this case on the news and I followed it because it was always on. And but, you know, as I'm watching this and especially when this whole backstory on what Conrad's home life was actually like was revealed, it really put the whole thing again into a whole nother level of context. And um, wow, I it's difficult because Connor. Um, died at his own hand. So in a way, he's both perpetrator and victim. Yeah. And so to say, they everybody wants to feel like it was somebody else. Somebody else drove him to do this. When in a way, everybody has some responsibility in that. Well, the timeline stuff was interesting. Everybody wants to be absolved well, one of whatever of the, they did. One of the things like they that. show us in the timeline is that he did tell her he was going to kill himself for like many, many, many nights in a row. And told and said, you can't tell anybody or we're done. And then, and then he yeah. would still be alive the next day. And then he would do it again and he would still be alive. And then he would do it again and he would still be alive. And this is not does not speak to motive and does not speak to, you know, anything else. It speaks else. to the complexity of the But behavior. doesn't it speak to the fact that even if she thought she was encouraging him, she had reason to believe that he wouldn't actually do it considering the fact mm. that he'd popped up alive every single day afterwards and that she texted him afterwards saying, you there, you there, you there because she expected he would be. I'd love each of your opinions on the verdict here. The judge did decide that Michelle ultimately was responsible for Conrad's suicide on some level because she allegedly told him to get back in the truck, which he uh, believed. Toby, what do you think of that verdict? And what do you think of the question that gets put out there by 
I'm just going to say the totally fucking awesome defense lawyer that I would have defend me of any crime. He was really great. The idea that that's not even if that is what happened, it's not actually a crime, but whether or not like that is what happened. What do you think of the verdict in general, Toby? I find it difficult to think that she should be doing time for this. I feel like she's deserving of compassion. She was vulnerable and so was he and they played upon each other's vulnerabilities and I don't think she was able to make good decisions but it wasn't really through any fault of her own. I had a hard time kind of wrapping my head around like what the logic of it was because it seemed like a very kind of simple like well he would have just walked away and everything would have been fine if you hadn't said get the fuck back in the in the car but you know if he had really not wanted to commit suicide i think it would have been like no i'm not getting fucking back in the car and just walked away yeah i i agree with you toby i mean i think that he was in a cycle of like he's very obviously very low and What's to say that if he hadn't gotten back in the car that day, they wouldn't have had the same conversation the following day? I mean, this could have happened on any one of those days. I think based on, you know, the type of case, this is a case where I would have, you know, liked to see something settled with, you know, sent to some sort of like secure psychiatric unit instead of jail because she's clearly got issues as he did. And I feel like that was a much bigger factor in the case that should have been taken into account in the sentencing portion of this. Kevin, verdict fair or not fair? I think the verdict itself was fair. I think the charge was not... First of all, she got exceptionally good legal representation, yes. both in the initial appeals and that trial. Um, and I, th- I like to think that there was, a, there was a quote from her appellate attorney in front of the Massachusetts Judicial Court, there, there's the state Supreme Court, about explaining, so what's the difference here? He said, like, if you're standing on the edge of a bridge, I say jump. That's one thing. If I say I'm going to throw you over, that's a crime. If I just say jump and you do it, that's not a crime. Mm. You know, there's nothing on the books in the Commonwealth about this. So to do a Jack McCoy and say, well, there ought to be a law, so I'm going to charge you with it anyway. Right. I don't think that was fair. But for, you know, what transpired, two and a half years with a lot of it suspended and 15 months in Jail's not unreasonable. Do you think part of that was also to appease that whole idea of like the families need to feel like something happened? I feel well, like I part of it might have some been some justice. I mean, I think if you're found guilty, then you know some kind of uh, some kind of punishment is necessary. It's really complicated, and I think that's the whole point of this documentary. So, on that note. Let's do what we do. This is a dark topic, um, but we are reviewing podcasts. So I'd like you all to give your thumbs up or thumbs down review. Should our listeners, if they haven't yet, check out I Love You, Now Die on HBO. Laura Bricker, what do you think? I would say yes. Um, If you followed the case in the news, you only saw a portion of it. I will say I think it's the best use of B-roll film footage that I've seen in actually using the B-roll film footage while you're learning part of the story. And it's a really complicated um, story, but I liked the local angle as something that I knew something about. And now I feel like I actually know the whole story. What about you, Toby? Thumbs up or thumbs down review for HBO's I Love You, Now Die. Uh, I'll give it a thumbs up. It's tremendously sad, I think. I wouldn't watch it with my kids, I don't think. Well, maybe my, my son, who's older. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very well done. But, but, but the topic is, I think, pretty raw, especially, you know, if you have kids that age. I actually uh, would watch it with my kids, and I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I think this documentary was super well done. 
And I think that, you know, any criticism that it might face for being too sympathetic to Michelle, which I'm sure that lady in the car would say that it was, is really overcome by the tremendous amount of time that they do give to the prosecution's case. And they make a they do a good job laying out the prosecution's case. I mean, there are points in this documentary where I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's a solid timeline of stuff. And if I were inclined to believe that. I could believe that. I think the most telling moment in the documentary is when um, Conrad's mom says she has empathy for Michelle. That's not too much of a spoiler, so I'm comfortable saying it here. And to me, that's the crux of it. And that's the moment where I realize this is a really good documentary. When they get somebody who you would expect to say one thing, says another, and makes you realize there's more going on here. So big thumbs up for me for I Love You Now Die on HBO. What about you, Kevin? I'm also a thumbs up. I think it took what on the surface looked like a sensational story, made, added a lot of emotional depth to it, and some some decent enterprise journalism going into the confusing world of the teenage psyche and looking at a very difficult relationship between two complex, troubled people. You know, it's not what I thought it was going to be going in. It's very good. I think that most people will come away from this with a sense of satisfaction for for what they want they watched and you know a lot of questions about whether justice was actually served moving on Netflix has released a four-part crime series called Exhibit A. The documentary looks at four court cases in which questionable forensic science was used to secure otherwise shaky convictions. The problem with DNA is that if you have a science that is misunderstood, that science becomes like magic. It gets the power of magic. And that's what makes it very, very dangerous. Exhibit A goes at the public's blind trust in science, giving real-life examples of how it can be misused or misinterpreted. The docuseries also shows the human consequences, introducing us to the wrongfully accused and their families. Two notes. Our review of Exhibit A was taped live in front of an audience at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago this weekend. And the audio, yes is good. Otherwise, I would not be putting it in this podcast. Mm. But to hear more of that live show, if you want, check out our Patreon after show this week. We get into a true crime podcast update and, of course, Crime Writers Against Humanity. It's really fun, but you're going to hear the review part now. Second, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Exhibit A. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. All right, let's hear that conversation. Now, the format of the show is interesting. For each of these four cases, they talk to the expert first, the person who put together the forensic piece of evidence that they used at trial, and then they take it apart after talking to the expert. Toby, what did you think of that choice, to, to use that as the format, to have, for instance, the video guy showing how he did the video evidence of the show robbery, and then having the other people saying, like, no, this is complete bullshit, and here's why. What did you think of that? Uh, it's the kind of thing that I think I would normally have problems with, except that these guys are passing themselves off as experts. So I think the idea that if you're charging uh, for this and you're willing to go up during a trial where somebody's fate is like in some ways in your hands and spout this kind of stuff off, I think it's completely legitimate to sort of interrogate that. Like how, how uh, you know, is this real, right? So... 
I don't really have a problem with that, partly because I think these guys are completely, you know, not all of them, obviously, but the people they talk to, I mean, they're, they're, they're full of it. They should know that they're full of it. And the things that they're doing have real life consequences for people. And it's nice, like for the one guy, like it, it was like, oh, it started off as a hobby. And then, you know, I just started keep doing it. It's like, you know, this is not the best, you know, podcasting can be a hobby, like putting people into jail because you have some weird ideas about the way forensics works. That's not really a hobby. That's, you know, should be illegal probably. Um, so I don't, it's the kind of thing I would normally feel a little bit weird that you're kind of setting somebody up and they're like, oh, you know, this is what I do. And then you just like totally trash them. But in this case, I think what they're doing is so sort of on the face of it, bad that that's fine. What about you, Kevin? What did you think of the way that they put this together? Like using that expert first to sort of, I mean, I think that if you went into this not knowing what it was going to be, you might think, oh, we're going to learn how video surveillance is used to solve crimes. What, how did you think about how that this series dealt with that? I, th- I think it's good because a lot of people who will watch it, like the clip said, have uh, an almost blind faith in forensic science. And when someone gets on the stand and says, well, you know, the blood spatter is this, or, um, you know, the science shows the DNA is such and such, you know, we're like, yeah, okay, we, we buy that 100%. And so to demonstrate how in some cases the science can be misapplied or mis, you know, misused intentionally, I think is a revelation to a lot of people. I mean, I think when we started talking about it, in different things that we we'd interviewed at one point a writer who wrote I think for for Playboy wrote about DNA mixtures yeah. and then when you get into in the dark season two there's a lot about ripping apart pattern forensics so to have examples here of showing how it can be misused I think is going to be I think I think certain audience members have to buy into that so to confirm given the the confirmation bias first here's all the experts and they talk about cadaver dogs and you're like yeah cadaver dogs are really great and so now you've got the setup then you get to see them pull it apart right and then as opposed to starting off where you're like ah, 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 ah. give it to them first and then so i think it's a good good way of setting that up now laura you said you didn't love the sort of format and presentation of this series talk about that yeah so for me i think this series just felt very disjointed as i was watching it um you know because we had the introduction And then you had these like random interviews with the people that were involved, but the interviews themselves to me, it was like you had these weird B-roll film moments with each person that came. So you'd have like the person who's like sitting on the car in the parking lot or like here's this person feeding their cats for five minutes. And we're like, "Who, who is this person and how are they connected to this story? So I felt like the concept, I, I liked the concept of this show, but the execution for me, I was like, what? Until episode four, episodes one through three just like ended. And I'm like, so what happened in the case they were talking about? Did the person get an appeal? Is the person trying to get an appeal? Are they still in jail? Like, so I think I just, I felt like I needed a little bit more of a roadmap as I was watching. And um, some of the sort of random things that they included, I was like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, in the video forensics episode, which is the first one we watched, I believe that's episode one, right, Kevin? We meet George Powell. He is a Texas man uh, convicted of a robbery 
who raps about police corruption. My whole life I've been living for this moment. Everything I've been through, the reason I was chosen. A revolutionary spokesman sent to bring hope into a world that man turned hopeless. I thank God for everything that they've taken. That's when it became a revolution in the making. So Powell was convicted of a holdup after a quote forensics expert took this piece of uh, surveillance video and said it was definitely him, even though the video pretty clearly shows a guy who's five foot seven and Powell is actually six foot three. Toby, what did you think of how they talked about the unreliability of video in this show? Because I think typically what we often hear is like, the only way that I'll know what happened is if there's video. So. The way they start this, for people who haven't seen it, is they're talking about how, you know, you, you look at video and you think it's, you know, reality. And they show somebody shooting a gun. And, and then depending on how many frames per second they're, it's shot on, it looks like he shot it once. And if it's more frames per second, it looks like he shot it three times. If it's more frames per second, it looks like he shot it six times. So, which I thought was like really interesting. And I was wondering like, where is this gonna go? This, this sounds like pretty cool. But then when they actually get to what the case is about, it's not about that at all. As a matter of fact, it's very little to do with video. It's basically they have a video of this guy and he's walking out a door and this guy who pretends that he's a video analyst thinks he can do a model and show how tall this guy is based on different marks on the door and, and comes up with this completely ridiculous you know, estimation. He says he's over 6'2 or something. Oh, you know, it was, he, he says he's over 6'1 one and 1 eighth inch. Yes. Like, so it's like trying to make it super specific so it sounds like it's scientific, but it's not. And when they actually talk to somebody who does know what they're doing, they're like, no, like this guy's standing straight up. He's like 5'7 or 5'8. You know, and this is, this is something that happens in a lot of things is where they kind of tease something that seems like it's going to be super interesting, but then the actual story they have is like considerably less interesting, although it's sort of on the same theme. And that was kind of what I felt like, especially with this first one. The other ones weren't quite as bad. Right. Now, Laura, we did have another true crime trope in the video surveillance episode, we have a pen pal romance. Yes. Um, this is something that is fascinating to me, is yeah. that, and I would never judge the way a couple falls in love and gets together. However, there does seem to be like a lot of women, especially, who love writing to inmates and then falling in love with them. Yeah. What's up with that? I don't know, and in this case, she also wants to be a lawyer. Good for her. I'm like, what? So they're going to get married. She's going to help exonerate him. They're going to live happily ever after. Um, yeah, it's just, you I mean, we've seen this in other things. You know, obviously we watched the Ted Bundy thing recently um, where he had the woman, they married and they, uh, the guard turned the blind eyes so they could uh, procreate. Uh, so they had a little child and all that. But in this case, it was, again, I'm like, again, another prison pen pal. And now they're getting married. And now she's going to help him get out of jail. And she doesn't mind that they don't ever. It just, you know. Oh, there could be some prison pen pals in the room. You don't. I'm sorry. Don't judge. I'm not judge. I just, I just feel like it's like in every show we watch. I'm like, oh, my God. Here we have another prison pen pal. Um, but, you know, good for her. Do I have any prison pen pals in the audience? No, it's okay. It's okay. You, you can raise your Someone hand if you say, are. I used to have a prison pen pal from P.O. Box 14, Concord, New Hampshire. I have the letters in my barn at my house, so I can't say anything. I wasn't romantically involved, but I did keep the letters. 
I am getting a series of phone calls on our podcast hotline from a penitentiary in Washington State that I have not picked up. Remember the guy called like six times the other day? His name is Victor. You have a call from Victor. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been writing back and forth, though. All right. Well, Kevin, not everybody is pleased uh, with the way law enforcement is using science. And in the show, we see a panel of scientists convene to talk about misuse of science. Are those scientists there to protect the integrity of the criminal justice system, or are they there to protect scientific method and science? I think both, but I think primarily science. You know, I mean, the, 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 which is not to say that the people who have been mistreated or um, who have suffered the abuses used by the science aren't important. But, I mean, they're scientists. That's their bailiwick, and they, you know, it should be empirical evidence, and that's what they're trying to save. So... It gives them a credibility that, you know, perhaps defense attorneys or advocates don't have. They're saying, it's no, 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 there ought to be, you know, standards that meet this. You know, there ought to be at, at least X amount of um, bits of uh, what was in the blood spatter, you know, the drops of blood to indicate a spatter pattern. You know, they put a woman away for, you know, she apparently shot her husband in bed. There's blood everywhere, and she had a speck on her nightgown. Found like 20 years later or something? Yeah. And the other stuff that she, they thought was blood spatter was not? Yeah. It was dirt like or something? bacon grease or something? Yeah. So it's <laughs> like, and, and she gets convicted anyway. So they're like, okay, we really have to, this, I think they're there to help science, but that benefits the criminal justice system. And I'm just going to say that's why Kathleen Zellner bought the real blood. Why is that? Because you can't replicate the blood. You need the real blood. I'm like Kathleen Zellner. She knows what's going on. She does. She knows her blood. I'm going to have to find her. Sorry. Carry on. Now, Toby, you uh, wrote me a note. You said the blood spatter episode was okay, I guess. Um, But you said you don't think that's necessarily the most compelling issue with blood spatter evidence. What do you mean? I was thinking thinking about... Kathleen Zellner, surprisingly, and about this idea that you try and recreate these situations that you th- the way you think they happened, and then based on that, like I think because Kathleen Zellner was like, well, you hit over once in the head, and you get blood all over your hammer, and then you pick it up, and then you swing it, and then all the blood spatters against this thing, and then she has a piece of paper where she's catching it, and then she's comparing it. It just seems like you're making a bunch of assumptions and then trying to get a very, very specific match out of it. And I don't know exactly how that works. That seems, and I think there's, I think there's a general, I read an article about this a, a while ago, that this, this general idea of like pattern evidence, uh, which is blood, there's like a lot of things that fall under that, that sort of uh, rubric, but uh, blood spatter, and I think- uh, Bite uh, marks. Bite marks. Which again is one of those things. Fingerprints. Fingerprints. Ballistics. Is when you when you got an expert up there talking about it, and you know, I think it was in the Bundy documentary. You watch him, and you're like, "Wow, this is pretty compelling." But then when you talk to an uh, like an expert who's skeptical about this stuff, and it's just it's it's completely BS. You know, the way that they have to get it is gonna is gonna alter the the mark to begin with so you really can't base anything on it the one thing i liked about this show is that it is bringing up these issues uh what i didn't like is i didn't think they were bringing them up in like like if you're just starting this show and you could 
pick up any case you wanted to or whatever, I don't think they picked like super interesting cases to sort of illustrate what I thought were important and interesting points. Well, yeah, contrast that with the way In the Dark season two did ballistics evidence, which was a long time ago because that was like an early episode of the second season with Curtis Flowers. And they basically talked to a bunch of experts who said, you know, we've learned about evidence and juries have learned about evidence from watching CSI. So like everyone thinks that there's a thing called like backspatter because we've seen it on CSI a million times. But like, again, you have no idea what actually caused that pattern. That's just a thing that some experts said that stuck. And what Madeline Barron did was they sort of went deep into the the, the demarcations like on the bullet or the bullet casing and basically showed that there's no standard for how many things have to match for them to say this is a match. And she literally has one of the foremost experts in the country on tape saying, yeah, it's just my opinion that it matched. And that's how a conviction happened. In the cadaver dog episode, we meet a character named Benika. Now, she's the mother of a little girl who vanished after a carjacking. She gave her thoughts as to why the cops didn't suspect her of committing a crime and why they focused solely on her husband. And here she is talking about her own persona. Because he had a past, you know, some things he had did when he was younger, a record. It made it much easier to paint him as a bad guy that would do bad things. I don't have that checkered past. I'm a veteran, I'm a homeowner, I volunteer. I'm a Girl Scout, God damn it. You can't go to court and paint me as a bad, bad person that does bad, bad things. I bake. I bake. <laughs> I love that. Laura, you bake. I, I do bake, yes. <laughs> uh, I baked some uh, muffins for my family before I left for this festival. But you're what, definitely what you... not a killer then. <laughs> I'm curious, Laura, what did you think about this case? This was the Cadaver Dogs episode. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting because I think that one of the things they did really effectively in this episode in talking to the guy that was training the cadaver dogs is, you know, he really stressed, like, yeah, this is how we train the dogs. And they showed very, you know... Uh, it was very transparent when they went and showed like, yeah, we're training the dogs. They're dogs. They're not a piece of equipment. They are a tool to point you to some evidence. They are not like saying conclusively, this is evidence. So they're like something you can use to help you, but this is not something to be relied on, you know, to the level of like, we're going to take this as gospel. Um, so I thought they did that really well in this episode. Um, I thought it was really... <laughs> Just a side note, the guy that was training the dogs who was like talking about um, what dead bodies smelled like, and he's like, oh, it's not that bad. It's just kind of a sweet smell. I'm like... Literally the opposite of what everyone who ever ever smelled a dead body pretty says. Pretty much my no, I won't even say what my husband said. It's but it's it's not that's not what he said. It smells like so I was like okay, dog guy, good for you. So I thought that this that was this episode is where this this series I felt like for me I was like this was a little bit more interesting than the earlier episodes because you could really see so you know. The, the limitations of this particular investigative tool from the people that were using them being very, you know, forthcoming and open about, you know, how this could this could help you, but also it's not always, this isn't always, like they, they may be hitting on something completely unrelated, like, what was it, like, oh, they're hitting on like the eight-year-old leg or something? What was it they had buried out there for like eight years or something in their little training ground? That, that, that was same- it a leg? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a leg. leg. Yeah. Sorry, we just had a leg in something else, too. <laughs> so that same guy was in, uh, brought his dogs to Portugal 
to look for Madeline McCann. Oh, really? And yeah. also oh, had like these, was like hitting around this apartment, but nothing ever really came of it. That's but right. oh, a like, shitstorm came of it, though. That's what came of it. And he's, oh, yeah, the bo- she's dead. Right. Based on this. Right. And this guy's dog is finding dead bodies everywhere, apparently. Yeah, the and they, they showed the exact same like training videos in, the, in that yeah. documentary, too. That was when these guys were on vacation. It was just yeah, kind of yeah. No, there yeah. was. I'm looking at my note here. There was something because there's somebody who had a gangrene leg in their garage for eight years, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who does that? The same people who, who has the gangrene have leg pen in their garage. romances. That that eight years? <laughs> like he had it in the garage with the sports equipment? What? <laughs> Ten old tennis rackets. Here's a baseball bat. Here's a gangrene leg. Those snowshoes that look like tennis rackets. <laughs> like what? And then a gangrene leg. And the wife was like, "Oh yeah, he's just got that in the garage." Where do you want him to put it? <laughs> now, Kevin, I, this reminds me of a couple of podcasts that we've talked about a lot on our show. Um, we talked about Someone Knows Something, which also had like a famous episode with cadaver dogs. Um, Missing Maura Murray, um, there's a lot in that case sort of around cadaver dogs. And I, again, it's a little bit different than the straight science of, say, the not straight science of, say, something like blood spatter or... Um, you know, the DNA that can be contaminated and so forth, because I think there is something about us, like we want to believe in dogs. Is that like a stupid thing to say? But like, don't you feel like we want to believe there's like a magic about dogs and animals? Like we want to believe that they know what they're doing. Yeah, but we don't, dogs don't lie. No, right? (laughs) Dogs don't stretch the truth or something like that. And I think, you know, obviously I think there are dogs that are, um, you know, very well trained cadaver dogs and have helped out in searches and stuff and they've demonstrated because they've hit on an actual body it becomes it becomes less clear when they hit on something and there's no body you know there's no body there right so to say oh yeah this is what this means and you know that's i'm sure that there are dogs that are trained and could do that and, and you know and objectively do that but then they demonstrate oh here's i got my dog and he's really well trained and they, you know, just show them, nope, you, 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 your dog hit on a squirrel or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. You know? Well, think about like uh, someone knows something that first season yeah. when they came back and they're like, we brought the cadaver dogs out. And like, I was so excited when they were like, the weather is now optimal. We can go out and search the lake. And I'm like, yes, they're going to find something. And then they didn't find anything. And it was so, I was like, no, but the dogs, the dogs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no so, one knows anything in season one I of know, Someone Knows Something, but, Laura Bricker. Oh, man. We the, know that. The dog said something was in the lake. God love our friend Timmy David Timmy was down the well. I mean, last <laughs> never lied. Now, we do only see one reversal uh, in this series. A Brooklyn man is convicted of a hate crime based on touch DNA. Um, and it, it's, it raises the question, like, are we left doubting DNA evidence or just certain kinds of DNA evidence? Kevin, what do you think? I think just certain kinds. I mean, DNA is good, but there are technicians that will say this is a match using fewer and fewer markers. Right. Um, and then they get into this idea about what happens when you uh, intermix different, you have mixtures of DNA because right now, I mean, they swab this. I could murder Toby right here. And then there's going to be all these other podcasters' DNA mixed in, too. Right. There was a wow. good... It was the this Canadian is like the making of a new podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right here. Yeah. There was a great example that he gave, one of the technicians gave about, you know, what can you do with the mixture? And, and he used the example of listening to two songs at the same time. 
one person may be 90% of the total DNA, the other person could be 10%. Imagine that one song is playing nine times the volume of the other. The loud song becomes very easy, but the minor song becomes uh, much more difficult. Sometimes mixtures are three people. What happens with four? Do you think you could identify four songs when they're all playing at different volumes? The same thing happens with DNA. Uh, Meatloaf did it. That's all I can say. Hey, I, no, I'm going to have a true confession. But you don't hear Journey at the bottom. Right. See, the Journey did it. Steve <laughs> Perry is definitely a killer. Uh, I don't know. Kevin, I went to a Meatloaf concert once. Uh-huh. Of course I, I'm going to admit this. It was my first concert with my high school boyfriend, Meatloaf. And did you give Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Or? No. No. Once again, no. Laura Bricker proves she is the whitest of the four of the white <laughs> crime writers from New Hampshire. All right. Well, on that note, let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to Exhibit A on Netflix. Would you recommend to the fine listeners of Crime Writers On that they check out this four-part series? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Um, I feel like, sorry, Rebecca, I got to bring back thumbs sideways on this one because... I didn't. I. I, can't, I don't want to give it a thumbs down because, you know, it wasn't that it was horrible, but for me, it just kind of missed the mark. Um, so I guess it is a thumbs down. I'm. I'm <laughs> I, I just. I felt like Toby said. Like I didn't feel like particularly invested in any of these cases except for the fourth episode. The fourth episode was a case that I actually felt like, oh, this is interesting. They've streamlined a little bit how they're talking to the people, but up to that point, I was like, um, and the way that like the episode would just end and you're like, so what happened to these people? Okay, do I care what happens next? I don't even know what happens next. So I'm going to say thumbs down. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Exhibit A on Netflix? Yeah, you know, it's the same thing because I think it's a, it's a super important topic. You know, it's just something that, that more people need to do, know about. But it just could have been so much better. Um, and there, we haven't even talked about some of the weirdness about, around the way uh, some of these episodes are directed like the first episode like I couldn't even tell if it was we were supposed to think it was real because of some of the settings that they had with this guy like <laughs> in prison like in this like interview situation but there's nobody else around and it's lit up like it's a you know it's like a theater set and it's like is this what am I supposed to make of this and then he starts rapping about like his it was just very very strange uh, so I, I guess I would give it a thumbs down uh, but I think, you know, if it's something that you're interested about, there's, there's so many other resources out there, but uh, they're not on Netflix. Um, the end. Uh, I'm really on the fence about this because I think it's good that it was made. I feel like if you showed it to, like, say, high schoolers who had only watched CSI or SVU and you wanted to just give them a small window in a short format about the fact that all the things that we think we know from TV, are, some of them are just a lot of bullshit, um, it, it does a good job of opening that door. But I think the audience for this is already that smart, would want more. I mean, Netflix's true crime audience, we've had Making a Murderer, we've had The Jinx, we've had all these like in-depth things that have pulled apart evidence, and this just felt like a snack instead of a meal, and it was a tasty snack, but like, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm gonna go thumbs down. What about you, Kevin? I'm a thumbs up. I mean, I think um, it's a very interesting story. I did like the human uh, interest element to it. 
We have always said when we were writing books that it's not about the fingerprints, it's about the people who leave those fingerprints. But it's definitely the kind of thing where this ought to be more of a known issue in the mainstream about the fact that people look at these, you know, these forensics like it's like it's magic and it isn't. And so, I mean, it's a terrible injustice that someone has to go to jail because of one speck of blood on a pillowcase. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. They say it takes one to know one. That was surely the case when Barry Lee Hastings Jr. of Plant City, Florida, pulled over a driver for speeding on Interstate 4. Two problems. First, although he was driving a Crown Vic with flashing lights, Hastings was not actually a cop. Second, the guy he pulled over was, in fact, a cop. (laughs) The off-duty officer demanded to see Hastings' identification, which he said he left at the station. The real cop wasn't buying that either. After speeding off, uniformed patrolmen caught up with the phony lawman. They say Hastings' car was equipped with a CB radio and flashing lights, but there were no handcuffs, weapons, or other items indicating nefarious motives. Panel, at the True Crime Podcast Festival, we had you answer this question with cards from Cards Against Humanity, and you can hear those answers right now on our Patreon after show. But this time you're on your own. So here's my question for you guys. What would this defendant say drove him to commit this crime? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Uh, He was providing a police escort to Frank Robb of Florida, who was the actual alligator hunter that caught (laughs) Chance the Snapper (laughs) in Chicago. And he needed to get there fast because Alligator Bob was not getting the job done. Mm. (laughs) What about you, Toby? What do you think the defendant would say actually drove him to commit this crime? Uh, because being a fake proctologist didn't work out so well. Oh, <laughs> wow. What about you, Kevin? What actually drove this defendant to commit this crime? Sorry, I'm going back to my Cards Against Humanity card. Bitches who be texting. <laughs> I have one. I have one. Yeah. He was cosplaying for the village people. (laughs) 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 All right. It's probably time to wrap up our show. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, Just for you, Rebecca, we have a dog of the week this week. Yes. I love it when we have a dog. Yeah. So this is Kathy Jordan Saff. I met her at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. Um, She said she's not like a social media person. Uh, How can I get you the information? She emailed us and I'm going to tell you all about her dog, Rosie. She sent a nice picture. She showed me the picture there as well. Uh, Rosie is an eight-year-old pit lab mix and she just beat cancer. Nice. So um, that was awesome. And she's wearing her purple Sergi Snuggly shirt, which she wore. I'm not really sure. She did tell me the purpose of it, but I still don't quite understand. Comfort. Um, She's a total sweetheart. She lets their two sons pester, cuddle without complaint. And even though she wants an entire pot of cooking grease, you can guess how that progressed, I'm sure. I love this dog. We love her more than words can say. Thanks for coming to Chicago, you guys. Kathy. All right, Laura Bricker. People want to send their ne'er-do-well pot of grease eating animals or cats to you to be cat slash dog slash pet of the week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you how much they think you should believe in the owl theory now that you've been attacked by an actual bird, which you can hear the details of on our Patreon after show. How can they find you on Twitter? 
I was about to say that I had a bird of the week. <laughs> but, uh, you beat me to it. Um, at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you how fine your pipes are sounding these days, how can they find you on Twitter? Well, they can do that at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Raiders on After Show right now. Yes, you will. You also get a new episode of Mary with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, which is also dropping this week, and Laura Bricker's amazing Leave It to Laura Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where DNA mixtures are pretty much inevitable on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later so before we start taping the show this is the time in the show where i would typically tell everyone a story and kind of warm them up so let me uh throw this out at you kevin and i have very few areas of conflict one of them is time another one is moving furniture the third one is packing for trips we have very different ideas about what size bag we should bring, whether we should carry on or check, what actually constitutes a carry-on. Uh, so in the, in the course of our regular packing conflict before coming here, uh, we were gonna go in one giant suitcase, we put all our stuff in there, it was overweight, so we decided last minute we had to split our stuff into two smaller bags, which resulted in me having no underwear in my suitcase for this trip. Oh, Rebecca. So just in case, Laura Bricker, you have been wondering, what is going on with Rebecca's pants today? Are you, are you commando? I am wearing a pair of Kevin's giant man boxer briefs. <laughs> wow. Oh my. They're big. <laughs> There's room to spare. The middle of my body feels like it's living in an entire different climate zone. <laughs> And there's just a tremendous amount of fabric going on right in the middle. So if for any, if, if there's any chance you've been wondering what's up with the weird visible panty line halfway down Rebecca's leg, now you know. Partners in Crime Media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.